Now there's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is to see that there's so many ways that people are doing BFR, like four sets of 15, three sets of 20. It's just annoying. However, what's cool about it is, despite the lack of standardization, we're still seeing benefit. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Nick, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I'm so excited to sit down with you and talk about BFR. Thank you for having me. really appreciate being here. So you integrate blood flow restriction therapy, and I took your course, and now I'm starting to integrate it in my practice. Tell us what it is. So blood flow restriction is using a class one medical device. And what that medical device does is it goes around the arm or the leg, and it increases muscle oxygen demand to the arm or leg muscles and in doing so creates a situation where you can get muscle mass and strength gains at much lower intensities than you normally would say you'd have to lift 100 pounds in order to get a benefit whether that's a squat whatever you're doing with blood flow restriction you actually can lift 20 to 30 pounds, maybe honestly, depending on the movement, even your body weight. And what the lack of oxygen delivery does is it increases the recruitment of those muscle fibers that are more likely to hypertrophy when you're lifting at that 100 pounds or 115, whatever that is. But the cool thing is you can do that with much less weight. And that opens up a ton of opportunity to get stronger in you know the general population but also those populations that the rehab professionals see in clinic so you're taking something that looks like a blood pressure cuff pumping it up cutting off the oxygen to the muscle and it creates this like chemical cascade yeah i mean i I don't like to use the word cutting off the oxygen because that scares people. So what, what we would do is you don't necessarily want to exercise an in intensity at a level where you're cutting off, quote unquote, the oxygen completely because then that would create a situation that is very, very uncomfortable and you might not necessarily get the muscle stimulation that you could get if you just slightly reduce the oxygen delivery. And so what that means is so say normally like as you said you have the blood pressure cuff inflates it pump 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 and what we would do is we measure at what point does the blood flow stop to the arm or the leg at that point we would then immediately back off and we would exercise it in percentage of that so with the arms, it's typically the end percentage or the most that I would ever exercise somebody at would be 50% of whatever that pressure is. So if it, if it takes 100 millimeters of mercury for like when you're blood when you're pumping it up for us to say, oh, we don't see we don't sense any uh, more blood flow coming to the arm. Well, then we would just exercise at at 50. So that would be 50% of that. So you're always getting some oxygen delivery to the muscles because that's going to be important in helping sustain some of those muscle contractions. Because if you if you can think about it, if we don't you don't have any oxygen to the muscle, 
And then with everything that happens with the chemical cascade that you're talking about, it, it is uncomfortable, but that uncomfortable feeling is, is where the adaptation happens. But you need to still contract those muscles in order to get a benefit. So if you are in such pain or discomfort that you stop the exercise and you've only done three repetitions at, you know, five pounds, for instance, like a bicep curl, you're really not going to gain much benefit. But now you take the opposite stance and say we didn't have blood flow restriction and you're using that five pound weight. Dr. Lenneke's group out in University of Mississippi, if anybody is, or Ole Miss, if anybody's interested in learning about blood flow restriction, he, his lab is definitely the leaders in research. And uh, his lab looked into the differences between using something like 30% of a weight and having occlusion on versus not. And that same weight, whereas you would, you would take 70 to 75 reps total, which is typically what we would do in our exercise scheme, would take over 100 more repetitions. So you're looking at 175, 180 reps of that same weight. So what blood flow restriction does is it stimulates those muscles that we can get that adaptation with heavy strength training, you know, heavier lifting, but we actually can use much less weight. And so we don't put a lot of stress on the joints and that's really cool for a re from a rehab perspective, but also from a performance perspective where by say we have athletes that are in season and we don't necessarily want to have them squatting 400 pounds in between, you know, say you're a baseball player and you have a game on Wednesday and today is Tuesday and you had a game yesterday, uh, you want to keep your legs fresh. Well, we know that because there's not as much mechanical loading that's going through the body, that the recovery period between workouts is actually less than 48 hours. So, and especially it gets even better once you get acclimated to the stimulus. So we can have athletes do a BFR workout intra season and still be able to perform. So there's a lot of different applications for that. So you talked about one kind of population. Who else is it for? for people um, who are listening to this and are thinking, is this for me? Honestly, if anybody can fit within, so blood flow restriction, just like anything and we do in life has people that probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, <laughs> so if you fit within those people that probably shouldn't be doing it, well then BFR is not for you. And those people can include people that are pregnant, people that have any existing arterial or venous problems because the mechanisms of blood flow restriction, just the way that it works, stresses both the arteries and the veins. If you have any issues with being able to feel your, your fingers or your toes just naturally, typically that comes with like diabetic neuropathies, anything where the sensation in the limbs are, are compromised, some things like sickle cell sickle cell disease where you're having a lack of oxygen delivery already. And a lot of these things, there's, there's, there's a couple more like uncontrolled hypertension. So you have high blood pressure. You can't really control it even with meds. So not for those people, not for those people, but, but anybody the else that there's literally, you can program blood flow restriction into any routine. So whether you have had surgery Mm -hmm. Surgery, you mentioned the athletes, athletes, big time population of interest are the elderly, the geriatrics, especially with bone density problems like osteopenia, osteoporosis. The reason why for those individuals is because strength training is indicated, but for bone density problem, for example, or even potentially fall risks, we might not necessarily want to have them 
<laughs> lifting heavier or you know being on their feet and so blood flow restriction we can really isolate those extensor muscles which are the really important muscles for postural control quadriceps gastrox those are the ones that we really can isolate but we can do that on the table so we can actually increase their muscle mass and strength and be able to get them up and then you know for me the biggest thing that people say is well we do bfr isolation like whatever but then how are we going to translate that well just like anything right you want to increase the capacity of the system and then once you increase the capacity of the system that doesn't necessarily mean that for instance in the athlete situation say we have people that are high level cyclists and you know then they've done research on this taylor in 2016 was looking at a simple sprinting program on the bike in trained cyclists and showed that you know they improved their vo2 max in, in four weeks i think it was like four and a half percent five percent so and that's really good for people that are training on that same modality, on the same exercise machine, and being able to improve their VO2 max. However, what they saw was that they really had no change in time trial performance. Now, why? For me, it's, it's the same thing, right? You can increase the capacity, but they might not necessarily be accustomed to working at that new capacity. So there still needs to be a bridge from increasing capacity to now performance. And that bridge, and I'll give a I'll give a shout out to Kyle Ruth at Training Think Tank when we discussed this a couple months back. He really put it into a nice model for me, and it makes total sense. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the in the research. By and large, BFR can increase your VO2 max or your strength or your you know, hypertrophy. But if we're talking about performance enhancement, the research is pretty mixed. And it, and for me, that just means that we just need to be able to, again, be able to bridge that. And that's where our role as coaches, therapists, whatever we want to call ourselves, come in when we actually use BFR in the clinic. And that goes back to the elderly example. Just because we increase their capacity, we still got to train them. We still got to do balance exercises with them. We still got to improve you know, their functional strength. It's just, it's one thing to say, all right, one rep max, that's great. But does that really translate to, to their function in those individuals? And that's where we can really segue, right. use BFR appropriately and understand that it is a modality. Now it's an active modality. I'm a very big fan of active modalities. But versus it, like E-STEM. Yeah, maybe? versus like E-STEM. Exactly. And so like this is something where we still need to, to get people active. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned you mentioned off air, it is uncomfortable. And so we need to be able to... So tell people what it feels like for people who've never experienced it. So imagine or imagine, you can just recall if you've ever exercised really intensely and right at the end of that like second or third set at those last three or four reps and you're feeling that muscle burn, that lactic, what people colloquially call a lactic acid burn and you're feeling that and you just want to get through that last rep and then as soon as you get through that la that last rep, you get sweet the sweet release <laughs> and now it's like done. Well, imagine that sweet release doesn't come and now you're just soaking in it. And you're just sitting there. So it's like burn. It's burn. It's the, it's the, it's that burn. Yeah. It really is. But that burn is so important because it really will signal to the brain that it needs to increase the effort in the next sets. And what the newest research in hypertrophy and even strength is coming to is that effort is so important. Our brain's perception of how much effort it needs to do or it needs to generate in order to 
lift a weight will signal a lot of these adaptations and that comes with how fast the weight is moving so typically at the end of the set you know you start out in the beginning of the set for example you start out and you're banging out reps and you can easily do you know very quick and at the end of the set you're like struggling to get that rep that rep completed you know it's going a lot slower well that's the that's when the magic happens because the muscle fibers they're overlapping the filaments inside you're getting a lot of max tension that's happening at that point and why is that the magic spot and that's the magic spot because we have a thing called the force velocity relationship and the force velocity relationship is pretty much the tenant of just general hypertrophy in that the faster we contract our muscles, just muscle growth, just yeah. for anyone who doesn't know what hypertrophy is for, for yeah. muscle growth, the faster that we contract our muscles, the less tension that's being generated on each individual muscle fiber. That's not a good thing because you want tension at the fiber level to signal that muscle growth. If you don't have that tension, it's no good versus something like if we have maximum force but we have slow velocity, that's going to also be a problem, like an isometric contraction, for example, because we're not, the filaments are overlapping and they're creating tension, but they're not able to change the amount of overlap that they're having. So there's this sweet spot that BFR can accelerate, which is getting to that period of time where we're trying to create as much effort as possible in the contraction that slows down that contraction and that creates maximum overlap of those myofilaments, the, the, the filaments that are inside of the muscle that create that hypertrophy or that signal that hypertrophy change or muscle mass change. And so we can do that which, with much less weights, cutting down that time and we can still get a similar benefit as lifting heavy. So it really is all about, and then that comes circles back to that brain, the brain and how we get the feedback from that and that uncomfortableness, that perception of, ooh, I don't like that, is gonna help, in a simplistic sense, it's gonna help with creating that relationship that we see and that's why we get such good benefits with light loads with BFR. Right. So we talk about the muscle on the podcast, Muscle Medicine. Why is it so important to maintain our muscle mass? Oh, man. And a lot of people, I think, don't realize that or don't know. I think in the health and wellness field, we know, but I think the general population doesn't know. Yeah. I mean, muscle mass by itself is a predictor of morbidity and mortality. So how well that we live our life and when our life ends. (laughs) Pretty much. So the more that we can have, the better. So we're not talking about bodybuilder-esque levels. We're talking about healthy, lean tissue that allows us to perform our functional activities, whether that's getting up from a chair. I speak with some of my older clients about playing with the grandkids, younger pregnant women being able to pick up their child, nursing. All of these are, are functional activities that we need muscle for. And if we don't have muscle, it's going to make everything a lot harder. And just in general, what's really cool, and it's actually a newer area of research, is something called myokines. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but pretty much what it's saying or what the research is saying is that our muscle is actually metabolically active. 
And so it can signal to the brain. And that's part of the reason why we're, we're probably seeing a lot of the benefit of the relationship before with the more muscle mass you have, the more likely it is that you're going to have less morbidity. Longevity. And longevity, have- yeah. But our muscles release hormones that help with managing inflammation, that help with signaling to the brain the health of the musculoskeletal system. So really, really, really cool stuff. And that's why muscle mass is so important for, for everybody. And I mean, again, we're not talking about bodybuilder-esque. We're talking about just maintaining a nice, healthy musculoskeletal system. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes, at least if you were kind of looking around on social media, BFR can sometimes feel like it's only for the bodybuilders. But really, going back to what you're saying, the elderly population, the people who have had a surgery or major injury and maybe they're bedbound and where their muscles are starting to atrophy or waste away is even that much more important to be maintaining their muscle mass. Sometimes you see people not necessarily using a medical grade cuff, but using a strap or some rubber band. Why, why should people probably not be doing that? Yeah. It's really important to understand what I kind of discussed before, which is this J-shaped relationship between if you have too much pressure, you don't get enough volume in, you don't signal that hypertrophy change. You're just going to experience that, that pain pretty much because you're not going to be, you're going to literally, it's going to be too painful for you to do. And if you don't do as much pressure, you're going to have to work too hard, or at least you're going to work harder with that load. So you might have to do a hundred or 50, 60, 70 more reps with a light load in order to get that. So this is that effect of, of muscle mass and strength increases. So there's this, there's this nice medium ground and that's where it's using something that a you can determine how much pressure you're going to be exerting on your arm or your leg, which is super important for objectivity if you're a clinician. But number two, it's important for just being able to say, all right, like I worked at this time, I worked at this percentage this week. All right, now, you know, if, if for instance, sometimes I start people at 40% of the arms to be able to acclimate. So now next week I'm at 45% and then 50%. So you can, you're able to then grade what your intervention is. And number three is the properties of the actual cuff prevent because it's not elastic. So it prevents this, this pumping effect that kind of can happen when you use something like a knee wrap or use an elastic band. So just on that alone, you're like the actual underpinnings of what BFR is in terms of being able to hold the pressure and being able to maintain that throughout the exercise, it's altered when you use something like an elastic band. Now there's the fourth problem or the fourth issue, which is subjectivity versus objectivity. I talked about it like two seconds ago, but really the whole way people are using knee wraps and the elastic bands are on a subjective scale of like perceived tightness of seven out of 10. Now, number one, That study that was really done was done on like 20, 21 year old males. So now you don't necessarily know the difference between women of that same age and then also men of a different age, women of a different age. And so now you're using your subjective, how you feel in order to say, all right, this is tight enough. Now, give an example. Like if I'm hungover, right? And I feel like crap my rating of just being able to get out of bed would be a lot harder than if I got 10 hours of sleep, right? So you can just take that same example and be like, all right, well, if I have a bad night, bad day, my subjective reportness of tightness might be different 
on one day versus another. So now you're just, tr now besides all I just said about that J-shaped curve, now you're gonna be using your subjective and it just adds another layer of uncertainty to that. And for me, I'm very objective in nature and anytime I talk about blood flow restriction, I, I think that we should be more objective than subjective. Now that's not to say that you're not gonna get some benefit from that. There have been at least four or five studies off the top of my head that I can think about that have shown benefit with using elastic wraps. But these are also in college athletes. These are in very healthy people nonetheless. Usually people that I'd be concerned about and just regularly, like anybody, as I said, like kind of fits precautions. Like you can use BFR, but right. it's not like a healthy 21-year-old athlete. Right. Then I want to be way more objective than than subjective and, and go there. Right. So the research has been around for how many years around BFR? So BFR originated actually in the 60s in Japan. And ironically, we were talking about bodybuilders. Ironically, <laughs> this was a Japanese bodybuilder that was sitting on his calves right before, I can't remember if he was in a church or... I so think like was, his legs were folded underneath him. His legs him. were folded underneath him. Yeah. And he started to experience that burning feeling from working out and then being a bodybuilder, you know, us meatheads and I'm a bodybuilder. So like I can say <laughs> that us meatheads are like, whatever we can do to facilitate more gains, we're going to try. And so what he did just came into his mind. He was like, let me wrap something around my leg and let me see if I can reproduce that feeling. And that's what he did. And that was the birth of what's called katsu training. And that's the BFR in Japan. And then it came through in the U.S. because we're, talk we're trying to salvage limbs in Vietnam and some of the, the wars after that. We're finding good success with that. Research started to come in saying that hypoxia or reducing the lack of oxygen delivery actually can help save and even condition muscle tissue. So they're having people... Which most people wouldn't think. Which most people wouldn't think, which is a nugget that I always tell people prior to starting BFR that you know they're actually using some degree of ischemic preconditioning, which is pretty much taking for five minutes you're completely occluding your arterial flow. You're forcing adaptation of the muscle and the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. And they go into surgery and they're finding that there's less damage to the muscle in general following a prolonged period of blockage, like 45 minutes to an hour without any oxygen because the cells have been acclimated to that. Anyways, that was just a divergent pathway. So it came back in and now it's been in rehab or it's now trickling down to rehab because it's been in, in um, professional sports for the last four or five, six years. And so there's a substantial body of literature out there. I would say I have a drive on Google where I kind of have read papers, summarized, and I have over 400 papers wow. on BFR. Yeah. And it's, and it's growing every other week. I, I do a roundabout and there's like four or five new papers. There's a lot. I think where it's going to be really interesting in the next year or so is there's a lot of clinical trials out now. So pretty much they've already shown conclusively that BFR is safe. It doesn't elevate a blood clot risk, which is what people would, would think, which is really important for numerous populations. There is still 
question marks about post-surgical, but even in some post-surgical research, there's been no adverse events reported, which is great. But I mean, it's now going into, all right, how can we optimize the protocols for BFR? There's a ton of research out in clinical populations that are, that are going to be published very soon. So we should know way more on some of the clinical populations in the next year. So when you use BFR on athletes, there's not a standardized set rep, right? So like the Japanese versus the Norwegians huh. versus the United States all have different kind of how many times should someone be doing an exercise? You're taking that from my course, right? Yeah. It's really frustrating from somebody who reads a lot of the research and lives in it like I do. Now, there's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is to see that there's so many ways that people are doing BFR, like four sets of 15 three sets of 20. It's just annoying. However, what's cool about it is... But there's no standardization. Yeah. So What's cool about it is, despite the lack of standardization, we're still seeing benefit. That's good. Which is really, really, really cool. So you circle back to what we were talking about, about effort and about the force velocity relationship. And so we're getting those tissues to a very slow contraction velocity, maximizing the fiber overlap which is going to create that hypertrophy signal. So we're getting that in multiple different populations with multiple different protocols despite the lack of standardization. And this is not even including the type of equipment that they're using, the width, and even if they're standardizing it to the individual. So with all of those different variations, we're still seeing a benefit of BFR. Now, my question is, how much benefit we can get with the BFR if we standardize it to the individual and we use a cuff that's wide. And so Lenicky's group two years ago, or maybe it was even last year, came out with their first position paper of trying to make sure that, we, that the future research standardizes it to the individual. So from a research perspective, we can see the magnitude of difference. So we're not just talking about if my arm pumped up to the same pressure as your arm, my arm is not going to be occluded nearly to the same degree. Right, because um, your so, arms are like four times the size of <laughs> maybe bigger. But that's what the research has been doing, which is so frustrating because they would have men and women and they would be occluded to the same pressure or they would be slightly different, which then adds another variation. So it's just, it's just frustrating. So they called out for standardization in the research body using at least standardized to the individual because what we've learned is that despite the differences in width. So if you have a wider cuff, then you need to you don't need to exert as much pressure to elicit the same amount of occlusion as something like a narrow cuff. So you can pump it up less. You can pump it up less. And that's important because the less that you can pump it up, the less disturbances to the other systems in your body, which which even if the disturbances are within safe realms, it's always good to to not disturb more things if you don't have to. Right. But the research has shown that you can use a narrow cuff and you'll get the same benefits as a wider cuff, but you're going to have to put the pressure four times, right. three times up. Like there have been some studies that they couldn't even determine 
what their limb occlusive pressure is. So the, the their arterial occlusive pressure, just the amount of to again completely block that brachial artery or the femoral artery, the main arteries that deliver the oxygen and nutrients to your arm or your leg. They couldn't even determine it hmm. because the amount of pressure that it takes. If you can imagine a small band and trying to trying to pull and trying to cut off as much blood as possible, you need to put a ton of pressure in versus something that's a little bit wider. Right. So they're trying to standardize it now, and so the research coming out hopefully is all using standard standardized relative to the individual that's going to allow us more to be able to generalize the findings to other people and be able to use that in the clinic more right so so let's compare case studies and i'm curious so i just recently had someone do i think a spartan race and she broke her shoulder mm -hmm. just fractured her humeral head and she has a thyroid issue, so she has a she has a hard time maintaining muscle mass in general. So we put the BFR cuffs on her legs. And can you explain why, even though we didn't put it on her arm, she still gets the effects of maintaining muscle mass, even though it's there's occlusion on a different part of her body. So, taking a page out of my book, I like it. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, I listen so, and learn. So what's really, really super cool about BFR, we talked about, and I hope I hammered it into the listener about the BFR reduces the, what we call volume workload to reach failure. And, and that's good. So put that in like a general population So the amount term. of the amount of repetitions. So say you normally have to take 180 repetitions to reach failure. Now with BFR, you might only need 70, 75. So that's what's called the volume workload because you're taking that same amount of weight, say five pounds, but you're now only multiplying that by 80 or multiplying it by 175. So less weight with less weight with with more benefit. Right. So that's great. And with that, you have all these hormones, these byproducts of exercise, and that will signal to the brain to release these hormones, either from different organs or the brain itself. And these then get released into the general bloodstream. When they get released into the general bloodstream, they're freely available to be uptaken by the various structures that will receive those. Just give us like two essential so with your case study with your with your case study for example what's cool so she broke her arm she broke her arm and she needs to help heal the arm what are important byproducts or hormones that are important for that well we have two number one we have something called vascular endothelial growth factor which is just a very just thing pretty much what it does is it helps deliver more oxygen to an area so vegf 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 and that with a blood flow restricted exercise, it gets signaled because there's a lack of oxygen in, in the area. So when it gets signaled, then it gets released into that bloodstream and it circulates everywhere. So that area that doesn't, that needs more blood flow, like a broken humerus, a broken arm. Well, now all of a sudden it's getting that VEGF that's coming in that can then help with trying to put down new capillary beds. And you're not, you don't even need to exercise in that same area in order to be able to get that benefit. And then the second hormone I would think would be beneficial is growth hormone. And growth hormone is important for collagen synthesis. Now, collagen is what we call the ultra structure of the human body that makes up our muscles, tendons, bones, ligaments. And it normally gets elevated with high intensity exercise. But 
we don't necessarily get that with low intensity exercise. And so part of the, the benefit of growth hormone is we can actually help aid in the healing process by having more of it available and that can help heal the bone that can also heal some of the underlying muscle potential damage because when you break a bone you're also going to get some interaction with the bone and the muscle so it really can just help with that and with a big muscle mass group like the legs that signals a lot more release than something like just like an arm tissue because we're thinking the more muscle mass that gets stimulated because of like for instance something like the afferents, the, the, the ones that signal to the brain, the discomfort that will then signal to the brain to then release those, those hormones. So it's really cool because in a rehab setting, you can have somebody that can't move their arm or can't even have a cuff on their arm for pain purposes, for example. And we can then do leg exercises with BFR. And then for me, I also add a heavy weight to the opposite arm because Mm. the cool thing that about our brain is when we contract a muscle on one side, we still get activation of the same muscle on the opposite side to a lesser degree. So we can create a strength stimulus. So for example, I'll have the individual do heavy bicep curls, heavy tricep curls, even heavy lat raises, lateral raises, shoulder raises, because I know that there's still the drive from the brain out to that muscle is still going to go to that area, that injured area, not to, not to the same degree, but we're still getting that strength stimulus to that region, even though we're not necessarily contracting those muscles. Right. Can you think of someone that is a patient or client of yours that had great success with BFR? Yeah. Similarly to you, I had a individual with a broken forearm, (laughs) colloquially speaking. So she got ran over and broke her ulna, which is one, which is if you go to your pinky and you just follow that bone out, that's that bone that got broke. And so I used BFR with her during the mid-range periods for her once she was cleared. And And you put the cuff where? On her shoulder. Same arm? Same arm. Okay. Put it on her shoulder, did active assisted work. So helped her initially when she barely could, could do that, create that cell swelling effect, which also signals to the body. So to did like unweighted bicep, just unweighted like bicep, bicep curls. curls, bring it up here and then gradually progressed her to, to regular bicep curls without anything, tricep. And I did the same thing. I did both legs, BFR, mm-hmm. squats, or like any sort of hinge pattern, whatever, to get as much muscle mass as possible. Yeah. And then progressed and then did at the same time, heavy bicep, tricep, and then gradually progressed her off of BFR once she could weight bear through. And so again, bridging the gap between the inability to to really do much to now being able to weight bear fully, using BFR to help bridge that gap, maintaining muscle mass, potentially increasing muscle mass, depending on the intensity of how you're going to be incorporating BFR. Did she heal quicker? She did. I mean, she, she was a pretty good candidate in general because she was super strong beforehand. Yeah. She's uh, one of the trainers at one of the gyms that I work out of. But I do find that people are able to do more specifically in a rehab session than without. Another thing that's super, super cool is that there actually has been documented in a research study about reduction in pain following use of BFR. So particularly... Not during. Not during. (laughs) Not during. After. After. (laughs) Very important caveat. Um, 
But they, what they've done is they've taken people with knee pain. And I just love saying this guy's name because he has, he has a great name. His name is Vasielos. He's a Greek guy. Vasielos Korakakis, I think. I think. And I just <laughs> went into an accent for no reason. Uh, that's because I just love saying that name. What he did is he took a cohort of people with knee pain. So typically, generalized knee, generalized pain. knee pain. And what the issue with knee pain is, for the most part, is quadriceps weakness. Really, quadriceps weakness, glute weakness, but really getting the quadriceps nice and strong to help control the knee. Now, typically in rehab setting, it's painful. Like to be able to do something like a step up is painful for these people, but they need it. Now, how much are you going to be able to push them to be able to do that versus they're like never going to come back and see you again is the question. Well, what they did was they did, they had an individual's rate their pain level with a short single leg squat. So just going down a little bit, then they had an individual go down a lot with a single leg squat and then they had them do a step up, right? They had those do those three tasks and then they had them rate their pain and then they had them do four sets of BFR leg extensions to failure with very light loads, mind you. So we're not trying to increase their knee pain. We're trying to increase the stress on the quadriceps muscle, which is going to be important for increasing the muscle mass and strength so they can improve their rehab. And then they had them do those same exercises again, and they had significant reductions in their reported pain levels. I see that a lot, actually. And anybody who really practices BFR consistently will also validate that claim. BFR has some pain-relieving properties for at least 45 minutes, they were saying, in their thing. I've seen it for at least that. But then what you could do in a rehab setting is do BFR beforehand and then load them functionally. So you're not really going to, you, as I said before, you can increase the capacity of a tissue, but you really can't increase the performance unless you actually do what you need to do at that level. Right. So that allows us from a rehab perspective to get them feeling less pain and then load those tissues more and be able to give them more benefit than just, Oh, I'm going to increase the strength and muscle mass of your quads. Right. So during BFR, we've talked about who it's uncomfortable. How do you, how do you get buy-in? Because every time when I first do it, there's a little bit of like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Oh, this is burning. Oh, uh, like so my I would hand say, feels a little cold. So I'd say, how are you framing using blood flow restriction? Yeah. So I would say, how are you approaching that conversation? How I'm am asking, I approaching? I'm asking you, yeah. <laughs> Throwing the question you, back at me. You? So I talk about that we're going to put this cuff on. We're going to blow it up. It's going to create this restriction of blood flow. There's going to be this chemical cascade that's super healthy and it's going to help maintain your muscle mass. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to burn, but it's for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. That to I just me, feel like in New York, we, we like it cushy. We like a nice yeah, cushy I mean, rehab experience sometimes. Yeah. The people that come and see me, for example, are people that have already failed rehab. So they failed rehab before I'm completely out of network. It's cash or out of network. So my population, and I'm a little bit skewed, but I have people that really want to get back. That really, like they've tried everything else. They've tried everything, and so so they're not averse to a little discomfort. Now, with that being said, I would start with BFR. The way that you get people buy-in is you start passive. So you actually don't even start active. You start passive, and you get them just just being able to get comfortable to the feeling of cell swelling. Right. So what that means is all you're going to be doing is you're going to be pumping it up Mm -hmm. to say in the arms, 
typically at the end range, I'll have 50%. But I'm going to start an individual, 50% and exercising. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start that individual at 40% and I'm just going to have them sit there. Mm, 40% and have them do no muscle contraction whatsoever. So what are they doing? They're feeling the effects of the pooling of the blood, which again is not dangerous whatsoever. It's just you're creating stress to that muscle tissue without having to experience the discomfort of a muscle contraction. Right. Then what you gradually you can do is if you have people that are kind of not accustomed to this is then you just have you don't even give them any weight. So say I'm doing a bicep curl, I'm gonna just do a bicep curl of forty percent. Right. I'm just gonna do no weight. Air bicep curls. Air bicep curls. Got Why? It. Because you are reducing the load completely. You are just letting the muscles do it, and that's not going to generate as intense of a feeling mm-hmm. as it would if you had any weight, even a one-pound, two-pound weight. Right. You get them doing it, so then you create this sense of self-efficacy in there, and they're going to experience some burning, but it's not necessarily going to be to the same degree as before. So they're, they're going to get more acclimated to the stimulus, mm-hmm. and then you can start to gradually integrate BFR more once they've understood I know how this feels. Right. Okay, I can go a little bit more because it's that it's that said principle, the the adaptation to impose demands, right? Our bodies actually for the metabolic stress that happens and the metabolic stress, I mean, the lack of oxygen severely stresses that muscle cell and forces the adaptation, which is great, but it's a very novel feeling. What you see over the course of time with these longitudinal studies is the RPE actually goes down a little bit. Why does it go down? And the RPE meaning the rate of perceived exertion by doing these exercises tends to go down. It doesn't go down all the time, but it tends to go down, especially in my practice, but also in some of the research that has been shown that it's good because our bodies get more adapt, adapted at handling that stress. Mm-hmm. Because we get these, as you said, the chemical cascades, we get the intracellular cascades that go and kind of buffer the environment to be able to then adapt. So when I'm integrating people that you know, that would be amazing candidates for BFR, but might be a little cushy. That's what I would do. I would start passive, then go gradually active. And then once they get that feeling and they're like, Oh, I know how that feel. Boom, done. And then you can kind of integrate that in. That would be my suggestion for people. Cause even if they're going completely passive, yeah, they're still going to get that cell swelling effect, mm-hmm. which is going to help with something. Like, it might not be amazing to the same degree, but you're building a foundation for them to then be able to get more benefit than they would before. So yeah. it's a give and a take. Right. And ideally, how many times a week would they be doing this? I mean, research really shows, and my own experiences with BFR, both as a practitioner, but also as just someone that uses it for themselves, himself, no more than three times a week, every other day. What's cool is that because you're not using a high level of mechanical stress to the joint, but also to the muscle cell or muscle tissue at large, that you're really going to get returned to full strength within 48 hours once you're acclimated. So you technically could do it every other day, which is typically what I've been doing in a BFR block that I would program is you do BFR every other day and you can do this either as by itself or you can do this before your workouts. And again, that's where shameless plug for the BFR pros, my company, we do BFR specific programming for athletes and pretty much anybody that is looking to accelerate 
their performance that we kind of take over that role because we are the experts in using blood flow restriction. But two or three times a week is plenty for resistance uh, nice. BFR. You don't necessarily need to do high frequency. Although I will say that there is a couple of studies. One of the studies in general, Nielsen in 2012 looked at satellite cells. And satellite cells are what I call the conductors of muscle hypertrophy. So what you what they do is they pretty much will lay down, they will signal to lay down muscle tissue, right? The more that you have in your muscle, the more absolute potential you're going to have for muscle growth. And so they showed that actually doing BFR high, like every single day for 11 days, increased the satellite cell proliferation. I can't even remember. I think it's 21, 24% or something like that with light load, which is unheard of. We never thought that we would be able to get those cells to come in to now the muscle fiber to then stimulate this growth with such light loads. We thought that only heavy loads could really generate that. Right. And so there is a, there is a potential benefit for a short term stint with high frequency. But in general, I think that if you're somebody that is lifting heavier on certain days and using BFR as an adjunct or even just as a full on, you know, BFR for like a BFR day, but you're still lifting heavy, I don't necessarily think that you need to do a high frequency program like that. I think you'll get the benefits of the satellite cells with heavier lifting, yeah. which is what we're, you know, we've seen. Yeah. But yeah, there's definitely cool ways that you can integrate BFR into whatever you're going to be doing. Awesome. Where can people find you? People can find me at Flex NYC 41st and Lex for the in-person for session. For the in-person sessions. And then people can find me on social media at the Human Performance Mechanic and also obviously at the BFR Pros. So those are the two areas that people can find me. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on. Well, thank you. Really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here. 